welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. That's good. So, let's get into step one. Shall we? Shall we? All right. I shall commit this. And I'm going to begin in the big book. I've got the latest edition, the fourth edition. I actually have a real first edition, but I didn't bring that because most people will probably be completely thrown off by the page numbers. So I didn't bring one of those. Actually, it's not. This is a uh, third edition. So it'll probably be closer. Okay, so we're going to spend, what, I'm going to spend about, we said that, about yeah. 20 minutes, approximately, he'll spend about 20 minutes, and then we'll open it up for any questions or what have you. Um, I'm going to begin in the doctor's opinion, uh, which is right at the front after the Ford's. The Fords have really good information also. I'm just not going to spend time in it. Uh, one important sentence, the Fords of the first edition, it says, to show other sexaholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. And um, I really like uh, that vocabulary, precisely how we have recovered, not recovering or what have you. What if, and, and as we get into the literature, I learned that what they're saying there is recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. And that's the two things, mind and body, are really where the disease is manifested in, the physical and the mental, as well as the spiritual aspect. Um, but here in, doctors, in the doctor's opinion written by uh, Dr. William Silkworth, who was working at the beginning with, um, uh, with these guys here, um, and in the doctor's opinion, I'll deal with the first thing of which I mentioned, uh, the physical craving, the physical manifestation of, of the allergy to lust, of which, if you're a sexaholic like I am, um, you may have. Uh, I've found this has been the truth for, for me um, in my own experience. And if you will look on, let's see, that's Roman numeral... X, X5, 28. Yeah. Roman number 28. That should all be the same in all editions, I would imagine. This is the second paragraph, and it begins with, We believe. Everybody got that? Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's the second. What it is the second page, if you will, of his little italics or small type. I didn't think of the complex of different editions. Alright. Okay. Everybody got it. So we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of lust, I'm going to obviously put in lust for alcohol, right? um, on these chronic sexaholics is a manifestation of an allergy that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate luster. These allergic types can never safely use lust in any form at all. And once having formed the habit, excuse me, and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, they, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Anytime I've worked with any guys, I really focus on this part of the book, which unfortunately can be passed over in meetings, um, and it's just got such important information on it. And that speaks to me, and that, that's, that, that's the important thing, is, is to get into to the literature here and see how does this speak to me personally. On a personal level, out of my own experience, do I feel that? Do I understand that? Is that, is that a truth for me in my own experience? And the first step saying, admitted that I'm powerless over lust. My life has become unmanageable. And here he's flushing that out, saying, you know, with the action of lust on me is a manifestation of an allergy. Just like an allergic reaction to pollen or uh, uh, um, what have you. If, if, if I have allergic reaction to pollen or dust, the allergens bind to the antibody or whatever the scientific thing is, and I have an unnatural, you know, it overcompensates and my body has an unnatural reaction. And that's the way I respond to lust. Um, uh, before, getting so- before getting sober, um, it didn't matter what it is, what it was, if a woman walking down the street or what have you, if I ingested any lust, and still today, without God's help, immediately I respond in a way that is not natural, you know, to other people that aren't that are not sexaholics. I can't handle it, and I have no control over what happens after taking that first hit of lust. Um, I can never safely use it in any form at all. And skipping down to the next paragraph there, the last sentence, it says, In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So, you know, he introduces, just briefly, gives us just a hint of what the second step would look like. And uh, recreate is, is, is a, a, you know, an important word right there. Not just to kind of slightly reform, but to really recreate an entire psychic change of which he talks about in a second here. Um, and then if you'll skip another paragraph, it says, Men and women lust essentially because they like the effect produced by it, obviously. Um, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their lust life seems the only normal one. And they are restless, irritable, and discontented until they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks of lust. After they have succumbed to the desire again and the phenomenon, the phenomenon of craving develops. 
And so what this what this picture what what this is creating is this picture here that um, okay you indulge in lust because you like the effect produced by it because you're sexaholic you begin to you know and the 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 craving occurs after indulging in lust you have the the allergic reaction and then after indulging in it in this type of behavior after a certain amount of time then I start to the lying that is involved in believing that this is going to fulfill me and that the lust is going to really give me joy and it's really going to give me the uh, oblivion that I want. They cannot seem after a time to differentiate the true from the false. That's not only denial, that's delusional. Um, So he's using some pretty strong language here that really gives me a, a, a true picture of my condition with, without recovery um, and really looking at the nature of the first step and how it relates to me. Um, and then it says here that this is repeated over and over and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope for his recovery. Um, and psychic, of course, has to do with your psyche and so at a very deep level, unless I can experience a change, my very soul, you know, a psychic change, then my, my ending up place is going to be uh, in the grave or in prison. That's, what, that's the stark reality of, of, of Adam in the disease because... Because this is what happens. I have no control. Lust controls me. It drives me around. Um, this coming from uh, a man from the outside looking in. I don't believe he was in recovery himself. Maybe you're safe with that. I think that's the case. Um, <coughs> Alright, I'm going to skip through the rest of that. Flip it a page. This is my page 30, but apparently they're not lined up with the pages. So that's fun. That's okay. The paragraph is, uh, There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. You interpret that as you will. Um, Again, and, and here it's made real clear to me that this is a life and death situation of which I'm dealing with. Period. That's it. There's no other options. As a result of the, the physical manifestation of the allergy, you know, with, with, without a recovery, without an entire psychic change, I, what the supreme sacrifice may be, uh, for some people, they take their own lives, unfortunately, as a result of the disease running its course. Um, Again, he says, all of these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start lusting without developing the phenomenon of craving. So apparently he thinks this is just a little important. He said it a few times. Um, And he says, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And I submit to you that this book is really what brings about that answer. The only relief is entire absence. Well, how how do you do that? I mean, in the face of all this, you're you know 
completely powerless, how am I going to achieve complete abstinence? And and that's the exact point of this book is to is to give the answer of how you can get you can be a recovered sexaholic. Um, okay, that's all. That's all I'm going to uh, spend in the doctor's opinion. Because I only have a few moments left here, um, and I'm going to skip over Bill's story. Not that there's not good stuff in Bill's story. He gives a really great description of the progression of the disease and uh, the havoc that, that it wreaks in a person's life, no doubt. Um, the one paragraph, I think, that really sums up, uh, you know, and I identify with, with this, the bottom, hitting that bottom and really hitting that place of... of um, Despair. Uh, this is after just a, a couple of times of, of him swearing off, and you know he's he's going to you know do right from here on out, no more drinking, right? And he says, "No words can tell." This is after another relapse. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. And for this, lust was my master. And I just... That's... Uh, I'm page 8 of, of Bill's story. I'm sorry. Uh, in the fourth edition, of course. These pages are the same. These are the same. All right. Good deal. Yeah. And... Uh, Again, and, and also in working with the first step, it's and when I've worked with guys, try as much as possible, especially maybe if they're coming in and, and there may be a more quote unquote high bottom, uh, whatever that means, different interpretations, I, you know, what have you. Try to as much as I can get them to see the truth of their condition. Is is as much my you know. My boundaries to do so. I'm not. I'm not to tell them that they're a sexaholic and that they need recovery. That's for them to come to their own conclusion with. Um, but to really sit and think with some of these things, and with this one paragraph, to think, okay, I had been overwhelmed. Lust was my master. Is that is that true? And I mean, to think of the power of that is 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 pretty uh, remarkable in the negative sense, of course. To imagine that lust is mastering my life and running, running life around, right? And um, hopefully, if the truth of that sinks in, then, and this is my experience, realizing, well, my gosh, I, I better, uh, I better get a recovery, yeah. Unless, unless I just want to go to the bitter end with this type of stuff, right? Um, Let's see, I'm going to spend a minute or two now um, in chapter 2. Uh, there's a solution. Page 17. Thank you, sir. And so here, uh, still really, they're focused on the first step. But there's an interesting little introduction of the answer. Um, but at the same time, they're really still focusing on the first step. Um at the beginning right here, they say, 
uh, we have out Sexualists Anonymous know thousands of men and women who once were just as hopeless. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the lust problem. So there you go. They offer just a little bit of hope in the face of you know, really presenting the truth of the problem. Um, turn the page to page 18. Uh, let's see. Five lines down. The sexaholic illness, uh, for with it goes an annihilation of all the things worthwhile in life. It engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. It brings misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents. Anyone can increase the list. Um, And again, this is just bringing more of the truth of the reality of the disease and what that entails. Um, We can see here that, thank you, (laughs) that it not only affects me, uh, or the you know the addict, but my gosh, everything around him is affected, and and it can bring you know a significant amount of unfortunate harm to those around him. Um, and and again to sit with with my own experience of well, has this happened to me? And uh, yes, yes, it has. Has it brought misunderstanding? Uh-huh. Fierce resentment? Yes. Financial insecurity? Uh-huh. And and just go on through like that. Um, let's see. I have five minutes. My time. My timekeeper tells me. Uh, <laughs> let's see here. My next page number. Um, page twenty-four. Top of page twenty-four. At a certain point in the lusting of every sexaholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop lusting is of absolutely no avail. That doesn't require any further explanation. <laughs> um, at the bottom of the page, here we have uh, the three the three destinations of the sexaholic on his um, journey, unless he can get a recovery, jails, institutions, or death. Locked up, may die, or go permanently insane. My experience had been I was close to dying. I was in an, I was should have gone to prison, and I had I was in an institution. Um, thank God I, I came up against the answer and, and accepted it. Uh, next page twenty five. If you are as seriously sexaholic as we are, we believe there is no middle of the road solution, no gray area, no maybe, no sitting on the fence. That type of stuff will will kill you. Um, same same paragraph. So two options. These are the two options, and this is the thing that you got, I got to ask myself at the first step. I'm either going to go to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of my intolerable situation as best as I can, or accept spiritual help. Those are the two options. Understanding that if I'm going to accept spiritual help, I got to realize that I'm I need to go be willing to go to any length to get a recovery, any length, whatever that means. Um, okay, and then page 27, and then this again is um, in the face of the first step, and 
and admitting admitting that I'm powerless and in need of help here says that uh, once in a while sexaholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. Huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which once were the <coughs> guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begins to dominate them. Um, so... There, there again, is just an important paragraph of where they are beginning to present the, the answer to a degree. And if I go over that time at all, just a little bit, I think it's okay, but I'm, I'm going to finish it up. Um, I'm going to skip now ahead to chapter 3, more about alcoholism, on page 30 real quick. So I can cover... Um, we already talked about the physical craving as presented in the doctor's opinion, and here is the other aspect of the mental obsession that so many people will go back out over because, well, especially with the substances, though, you get the relief from the physical craving. But nonetheless, with the mental obsession, um, the idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his lusting is the great obsession of every abnormal luster, if there is such a thing as a normal luster. I'd like to see one. Uh, the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. Um, this is the first step in recovery. We sexaholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our lusting. Um, and if any, any of you have ever experienced the feeling of thinking that you do have some control, that usually leads to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Okay, uh, so therefore... Um, let's see... Reset it. Oh, you reset it? Alright. We're now into Robert's time. So that's there's some really important... Uh, no, please continue. Oh, yeah? Take as long as you want. Okay, alright. I'm, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. Um, there's a really uh, valuable first step exercise that my sponsor introduced to me after six years in the program. If anybody is more interested in that, I can talk to you about that um, on a one-on-one basis or what have you. It's very helpful. Um, it's just listing out ways in which, you know, powerless and then ways in which I'm unmanageable, differentiating between the two and tying them together. Um, and uh, one of the most important things in my recovery, Alan, with this, is, is to keep this fresh and alive in my mind, in my heart, every single day of my life. When I get up in the morning and I do go through the first couple of steps and get on my knees and say the third step, I, I keep got to keep my realization of how much I need this program and, and that I can have freedom from the bondage of the mental obsession a day at a time and that I do not have to be enslaved to this disease. I can have freedom from it if I take the necessary proper actions that we'll be talking about through the program. But it's absolutely vital that I understand and my first step experience and keep that fresh and alive every single day so I can carry the principles in my life really w with the enthusiasm and the realization of how much I need this you know, every single day. And um, Man, I could talk for a long time on that. I could talk the whole, whole weekend on the first step. <laughs> but we'll, we'll let uh, Robert talk now. Thank you, Adam. The uh, 
First steps. A biggie. They're all biggies, but the first step, you know, I'm going to deal from, you know, like uh, my experience with working with others and, uh, and from my own. But I had to understand that now I'm seven years clean and sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm acting out like crazy. And step one is about powerlessness and unmanageability. That's what we need to know. Powerlessness and unmanageability. And it's not like I was powerless a long time ago and now I'm good. It's today. How am I powerless today? How is my life unmanageable today? How is my emotions unmanageable today? How are my emotions unmanageable today? How is my will unmanageable today? You know, from a chemical point of view, we can look at powerlessness. With the alcoholic, you take pick your drug of choice, but you know, with alcohol, I believe chemical composition C6, H12, OHOH. Any human being on the planet, you pour enough alcohol in them, they're going to get drunk. I think most every, there may be a couple of androgynous people out there, but basically, human beings on the planet experience lust. I mean, God created us that way for his own reasons. Uh, Sex is a divine gift and therefore inherently good. Uh, people experience lust. Well, with the alcoholic, you know, when we put alcohol in a human being, it you know goes down the throat into the stomach, is absorbed through the intestinal walls, virtually unchanged, gets into the blood, circulated in the bloodstream. The organ in the body that uses the most blood is the brain, and the first area of the brain that's affected. I recall is the occipital lobe controls judgment. When we drank, the first thing to go is judgment. Small surprise there. And uh, it eventually ends up in the liver, and there's some enzyme stuff that goes on there. And it seems that people that are alcoholic have less of this particular enzyme than people that are not alcoholic. And when alcohol breaks down in the liver, it breaks down into a couple of things, uh, one of which is acetaldehyde. And if that sounds like formaldehyde, it's because they're related. It's toxic. It's a poison. And we have this enzyme there that immediately bonds, and I forget whether it's ionic or covalent bonding, but it immediately neutralizes that acetaldehyde. And with the alcoholic, when, as soon as that enzyme runs, up, runs out, we start building up this toxicity and craving more. In fact, I think my drug of choice is more, more, faster, quicker, better, you know, whatever it is. And, but we have this physical craving for more, and then that's coupled with a mental obsession that compels me to, when I put alcohol in my body, you know, to make decisions that are not in my best interest, that are often self-destructive. Well, with lust, we don't know it's chemical. We created ourselves. You know, we.
control the dosage and the frequency. You know, how often do I want to think about it? All the time. <laughs> and, you know, how much getting off do I want? Uh, how much perversion do I want to go to? How excited do I want to get? You know, I control the dosage and the frequency. And, you know, we know that it mimics, you know, like what, uh, norepinephrine and uh, dopamine and some other stuff that they don't know what it is. But the fact that we manufacture it ourselves does not make it any less addictive. And for some reason, people that are sexaholic experience that drug differently than people that are not sexaholic. In my AA stuff and in dealing with AA guys, I was telling them about my S stuff. Everybody's got S issues. I mean, and at some point, you know, if they're not sexaholic, uh, you know, they're going to probably run into a sponsee that has those issues and they can say, I know a guy that, you know, kind of has these same issues and if you'd like, you know, uh, you should give them a call. You know, got a lot of calls over the years from people that way. And uh, and so Daryl, who was on in sales, doing national sales, traveling around, he calls me from this uh, meeting in Wyoming, middle of nowhere in Wyoming one night. And he comes out of the meeting and calls me up and he goes, Robert, you wouldn't believe this meeting that I went to. Hey, meeting. And, and he says, you know, there's all these people sitting around the table and they're talking about internet pornography and and how it's ruining their lives. Where are you, Daryl? <laughs> and, uh, and he goes, yeah, you know, they're talking about uh, spending a lot of money they ain't got and spending so much time on the computer and interfering with their uh, family life and, and uh, relationship with girlfriends or whatever. And, and he goes, I don't get it. He says, you know, I've been on the Internet. I see that stuff. And, you know, it gets me going for about 20 minutes and then I get bored I go do something else. <laughs> I thought, shit, if I could only do it for 20 minutes, I wouldn't bother. <laughs> but I had this epiphany. It was like, people that are not sexaholic, this is what happens. You know, they get really excited for about 20 minutes, and then it's like, what else is going on? <sighs> and for me, it ain't like that. For sexaholics of my type, it ain't like that. And you know, the alcoholics say one is too many and a thousand not enough. It's not the eighth or the tenth drink that gets you drunk, it's the first one. Powerlessness in my life looks like looking at something and thinking I can keep that image. Powerlessness in my life looked like as a contractor and, you know, pretty much had control of my calendar, my day, and this is a long time ago, uh, 85, 86, and, uh, and I'm going to the bank before they had ATM machines, <laughs> and I'm in line at the bank to make a deposit or get some money or transact some kind of business, and there's some very nice eye candy in the bank, and, uh, and I'm looking and I'm burning that image into my brain so that I can act out with it later so I can recall and really kind of capture the feeling that I get. I give myself 
full permission to do this. And 45 minutes later, I find I'm, you know, on the causeway going over to West Sac to the porn shop to get some videos and go home and whack off for six hours while my wife is at work. And maybe I've rubbed myself bloody. And now I'm sure as hell I'm not going to have sex with her because she's going to wonder what's going on. So when she comes home, I pick a fight with her, make sure that, you know, things aren't, aren't going to be cool for a couple of days. And, I mean, this is bad behavior. And, you know, at the end of the week, I'm doing billable hours, and there's big holes in my week. You know, it's like, damn, you know, I'm never going to do this again. And, you know, half an hour later, I'm out rummaging through the trash, getting my magazines out, or running over the West Sack again. And this is what powerlessness looks like in my life. And unmanageability. You know, one of the epiphanies that I had with unmanageability, again, it's AA, but it's like I lived in a land. I used to go to this morning meeting uh, down in Triangle every morning, 7 o'clock, and a lot of professionals there. Well, there was a, a rock star that used to come to that meeting every morning. and. Uh, and if I said his name, everybody would know who he is. But I really enjoyed his music. And, and, and this guy had more money than God and, uh, on football teams and one thing or another. But, you know, he had, you wouldn't know it, you know, sitting there in front of him. And, uh, and he talks about, you know, relationship troubles, and financial troubles, and food problems, and, you know, trying to stay on his diet and not form Bob. And, you know, just uh, all the things that we deal with. And I was thinking, man, you know, this guy hadn't made a hit album in years. And I can see why, you know, he's so distracted with all these other things going on in his life. And, you know, and he was complaining about his manager. I'm thinking, you know, God, if I, if I was this guy's manager, first of all, I'd get him squared away with this financial stuff because that really looked like it was kicking his butt. And, uh, you know, get him stabilized so that, you know, he didn't have to worry about all that crap. And, uh, and then, you know, this person that he was hooked up with, you know, is like, you know, there's a basket case, but get him in a long-term stable relationship, you know, so that, you know, he wouldn't be all over the place there. And Christ, he could afford his own chef, you know, and uh, one thing or another. And so anyway, I'm working the steps with some guy, you know, I'm thinking about powerlessness and unmanageability. Shit, if I could manage my own life, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> you know, I'd live in a bigger house, have a faster car, make more money, have a better look of life, you know, and my life's unmanageable. And, uh, and the truth is, when I was running the show myself, uh, my will, my say, my life was completely out of control and unmanageable. And my life is still unmanageable in that regard. But today, I got guidance. You know, I got sponsors. I got people that I can check in, people that know the way, and the people that are centered in this program are the ones that I rely on. And that's what makes my life manageable. My relationship to the God of my understanding, which I get through work, taking the actions of this program. If we look in the 12 and 12, uh, and I apologize, it's going to be, I didn't think of it until now, but 
this is a second edition and most people have a third so the pages will be off a little bit but uh, in uh, let's see one two about the third page over uh, their paragraph begins it was obviously necessary to raise the bottom what page is that? Anybody got it? 23. It was obviously necessary to raise the bottom the rest of us had hit to the point where it would hit them. By going back in our own uh, lusting histories, we could show that years before we realized that we were out of control, that our lusting even then was no mere habit and that it was indeed the beginning of a fatal progression. Fatal progression. You know, that's one of the things that I really dwell on is the fatal nature of our disease. And for me, a big reason, I mean, looking back on it and, and seeing it in perspective, you know, the reason that I drank and used the way that I did was because of my inability to deal with my sexual stuff. And you know, seven years clean and sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and the way I was acting out, I couldn't have stayed sober. And, you know, three years clean and sober this last time, and I'm sitting naked on my bedroom floor with a gun in my mouth. Now, I'd tried living, you know, sober without recovery, you know, like stark raving dry. And I'd tried living, drinking, and using, and neither one of them worked. And if there is a hell on earth, that's got to be it. I mean, and but I couldn't pull the trigger. The God of my understanding would not have me do that. And I felt so shitty because I, I didn't have enough balls to do that. I didn't have the courage to pull the trigger. And uh, God, I felt terrible. And uh, couldn't live and couldn't die. And but I knew if I continued to do what I was doing, I wouldn't be able to maintain my sobriety and drugs and alcohol. And it was only a period of time before I was going to relapse. My life would my wife would catch me, and I'm not going to pay the middleman. You know, drinking and drugging is just a life of misery, and I ain't going to pay the middleman. You know, I just didn't pull the trigger the next time. So I look at this disease as like a no shit, you bet your ass. And I encourage anybody that works with me to have that same attitude. If this is not the most important thing in your life, you're probably in the wrong room. Seriously. And I've hugged too many men now that are dead today because of their sexaholism, whether it's through AIDS or getting you know shot in the back of the head behind some bar getting a blowjob from a whore down in uh, Atlanta or being shot by a jealous husband. Uh, this disease will get us. To the doubters we could say perhaps you're not a sexaholic after all. Why don't you try some more controlled sexing? Bearing in mind meanwhile what we've told you about sexaholism. This attitude brought immediate and practical results. It was then discovered that when one sexaholic had planted in the mind of another the true nature of his malady, that person could never be the same again. I would 
posit this that when one sexaholic plants in the mind of another sexaholic the true nature of their recovery that that person will never be the same again following every spree he would say to himself maybe those essays were right after a few such experiences often years before the onset of extreme difficulties he would return to us convinced he had hit bottom as truly as any of us John Barleycorn himself had become our best advocate. Who's John Barleycorn? Lick. Alcohol. Kind of like Jim Beam or uh, Jack Daniels. When you know people used to you know go out on a bender, you know they'd say, "Well, where's Ernie?" And they'd say, "Well, Jack John Barleycorn came by, and him and Ernie are you know been out for two weeks." Well, with us. You know, looking at this and trying to translate, well, you know, how's John Barleycorn going to translate into lust? Oh, kid lust. Like a prize fighter. You know, kid lust. Well, man, I've gotten in the ring so many times with old kid lust, and every time I've got my butt beat, I have always been laid low to the canvas, bruised, bloody, and bludgeoned. I've never won against Kid Lust. And when I finally got to SA, here was a group of people. And they're all saying, Yay, Robert, you can make it. Yes, Robert, go, Robert. Yes, Robert, you can do it. Stay out of the ring. Do not get in the ring. (laughs) So how do I stay out of the ring? You know, and uh, the rest of the program is about how I stay out of the ring. But the first thing is, don't get in the ring. Do not take that first drink. Do not take that first look. And then how do I surrender that? You know, the most important thing in my life. If you ask me when I was sticking needles in my arms whether it felt good, I'd tell you, damn right it feels good. And if you'd ask me if I was going to die with a needle sticking on my arm, I'd tell you, yeah, probably. I don't know what's good for me. See, I think if it makes me feel good, it's good for me. Not true. It's a lie. Why all this insistence that every essay must hit bottom first? The answer is that few people will sincerely try to practice the essay program unless they have hit bottom. For practicing essays remaining 11 steps means the adoption of attitudes and actions that almost no sexaholic who is still acting out can dream of taking. Who wishes to be rigorously honest and tolerant? Hmm. What's the difference between truth and honesty? That's what my sponsor asked me. What's the difference between truth and honesty? I thought they were the same thing. And he suggested that uh, maybe there was a difference. And the difference is that truth is that which does not change. And honesty has to do with the intent to deceive or the lack of it. Truth is that which does not change. And honesty has to do with the intent to deceive or the lack of it. And I'll give you an example. I'm going to run out of time here in just a sec. But I'm going to close with this. 500 years ago, people could look you square in the eye and say, man, you don't want to sail too far in that direction because you'll sail right off the edge of the earth and the dragons will get you. had nothing to do with the truth, but it's what they believed. Well, 
300 years after that, they knew that was a bunch of hooey. I mean, we know that the Earth is round. And we also know that the Earth is the center of the universe. And that the sun and the moon and the stars all revolve around the planet Earth. And I can prove it to you because the sun is going to come up over there and you can watch it traverse the sky and set over there. And nothing to do with the truth. Truth is that which does not change. And honesty has to do with the intent to deceive but a lack of it. We have a program of rigorous honesty. And you can bullshit me. You can bullshit most everybody in here. But don't bullshit yourself. You know, bullshitting ourselves is what got us here. All I want to know is the truth. Tell me the truth. And I'll let you in on a little secret. The truth doesn't care how often it's challenged. It's like, it's two and two, four? Yep. I'm going to check back in about ten minutes. <laughs> you know, ten minutes later, is it still four? Yep, it's still four. It doesn't care. Truth doesn't care. But you know what? My life is predicated on two and two being four. And if somebody can come and show me that two and two ain't four, that it's actually four and something or a little bit less than four. So, you know, it's like, I want to know at the first available opportunity because i got a lot of work to do. I mean, i I got a lot of things to change because today I want to change my life to reality as opposed to trying to make reality conform to my fantasy. And the fantasy is that I have some kind of power over lust, that I can control and enjoy it in some kind of way. And when I act that way, my life gets unmanageable. And when I recognize the truth that I cannot take the first drink of lust, that I'm far better off, my life gets a lot better. So with that, we're concluded with step one, and we can take a break. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.